Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Antioch. If you've got any friends who are TV or movie geeks, you should ask them about tropes. A trope is a storytelling trick that writers and filmmakers use to convey layers of meaning. It's basically a visual metaphor, like a classic, universally recognized image that's shorthand for a concept that the audience will instantly recognize and connect with. So, for example, here are some frequently used tropes that we've all seen before in movies. First, there's the training montage trope where weeks or months of training for a big race or fight or showdown are edited into an epic three-minute sequence of action shots. Next, there's the nerd-takes-off-their-glasses trope, where the plain, unnoticeable character removes their eyewear and transforms into a superhero or a supermodel. And finally, there's the cool guys don't look at explosions trope that the SNL guys made famous a few years ago. It's this manly man, could be a hero or a villain, walking away calmly, unfazed by the destruction behind him. So sometimes tropes can be overused and they become cliche. That's basically what makes a cheesy movie cheesy. It's stringing together a bunch of worn out tropes. But when they're used well, Tropes can be an effective way of signaling that there's a bigger story being told or a deeper meaning being conveyed. Did you know that the Bible is full of tropes? Or maybe another word for it would be motifs. They aren't exactly the same thing, but they play a pretty similar role. These recurring structures, scenarios, literary devices that help the reader connect to the bigger story or the deeper meaning of the text. So, for example, you may have noticed that one of the tropes or motifs that flows through our lectionary readings for today is the image of water. The writers of the scriptures want their readers to make a connection between the water of Noah's flood and the water of Jesus' baptism and the way that God washes away our sins in Christ. So, the Bible's full of these recurring patterns, themes, and design elements that kind of hyperlink to each other in ways that help us understand what the authors are trying to communicate. So today, we're going to focus in on the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and we're going to look at some of the tropes or the motifs that Mark's gospel uses to convey the significance of what's happening in this story. So let's start by reviewing the context of Mark chapter 1, which is a passage we've looked at several times over the last couple months. Basically, there are three huge, significant events that happen back to back to back in the passage that the lovely Mila Blue Kelly just read for us from Mark 1. First, Jesus is baptized, then he's tested in the wilderness, and then he launches his ministry proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So, baptism, temptation, ministry. So the story starts with his baptism, and it ends with the launch of his ministry. But first, he has to go through the wilderness. So let's start immediately after his baptism in Mark chapter 1, verse 12. 
At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. This is a picture I took of the Judean wilderness on my first trip to Israel. This is where our story today takes place. These are the exact hills that Jesus walked as he was being tempted by the devil. Can you imagine spending 40 days out here all by yourself? That's what Jesus did. But there's an even bigger story that we're being invited into. The wilderness is one of the most prominent tropes throughout the scriptures. From Abraham and Moses to Jesus and the apostles, the wilderness becomes a familiar setting as you follow along in the story of the Bible. So when Mark places this event in the wilderness, he's not just noting an interesting geological detail, he's connecting this story to the much larger story. And he wants his, leader, his readers to follow the hyperlink and to see where it goes. And when you do, what you'll find is that some of the most significant events in the biblical story happen in the wilderness. No one goes into the wilderness and comes out the same. Now, some of us know that all too well, not just from the biblical stories, but from our own stories. And we start thinking about the times when our life has felt like the wilderness, when we've walked through those gnarly or painful seasons of suffering or loss or loneliness. For many of us, this past year has been a wilderness of sorts. The pain, the isolation, the drama and the division of COVID and politics and all of it. It's been a hard and desolate year for a lot of people. We all know that 2020 was pretty rough. But if you remember, for me personally, 2019 was really rough. 2020 was actually an upgrade, if you can believe it. I kind of liked it. But 2019 was my year in the desert. That was the year that my battle with depression took me to some pretty dark places. Like, I'd wake up in the morning and the only thing I had to look forward to was when I could go back to bed. It was also the year that I lost my mother-in-law, who was one of the most life-giving people on the planet for me. She died of ovarian cancer at 59. Our family's still grieving. And it was the year that I faced some of my demons and went on a three-week silent retreat. I holed up in a cabin in Washington all by myself with no screens, no music, no books, no outside contact of any kind except for a 5 a.m. double session with my psychotherapist every morning. I went up there hoping for a taste of heaven, but it really ended up being 21 days of hell. And I'm grateful for it. I needed it, and it might have even saved my life. But if you remember, it took me about three months to come back to life after that. So yeah, 2020, for me, wasn't so bad. 2019 was my wilderness. And I'm guessing that you've had those seasons too. When everything falls apart, when life doesn't go the way that it should, when God's presence feels more like absence. 
Christians have called this kind of season the dark night of the soul. But we never talk about it because we think we're the only one. But we've all been there. So for many of us, when we think about the wilderness, that's the kind of thing we picture. But I want to suggest to you that that's not actually how the trope goes. I know it feels that way sometimes, and that's okay. But if we actually follow the role of the wilderness in the Bible, I think we see something else. And I think it won't only change the way we see the wilderness, but it'll also change the way we see ourselves. So the story that Mark is hyperlinking to starts in Egypt, in, way back in the book of Exodus, and it continues all the way through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it ends in Canaan, in the book of Joshua. It starts in slavery, and it ends in the promised land. But you have to get through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy first. That's how the wilderness goes. So the Israelites, they pass through the Red Sea, which is the baptism trope. And they enter the water as slaves, but they come out on the other side as people set free. And then they spend the next four decades, that's the 40 trope, in the wilderness, being tempted and tested, learning how to depend on God, how to receive all of life as a gift from him. And then they're ready for what's next. So, if you think about it, the wilderness was the perfect place for Israel to unlearn their life of slavery and relearn the life of freedom. The desert land between Egypt and Canaan was completely empty of everything that the world considers important. There were no cities, no banks, no businesses, no industry. It was a place of emptiness by most standards but it was packed with the presence of God. In the absence of all the other things that fill our lives, they had no choice but to learn how to deal with God. And then when they came out on the other side, they were a new people with a new life living in a new land. And it's almost like they couldn't have gone straight from Egypt into Canaan, from baptism into promised land. They had to meet God in the desert first. So, to summarize, in the words of Eugene Peterson, we are not, it is clear, to think of the wilderness as a bad place, an empty place, a desolate place. It was empty of vegetation and human artifacts, but full of God. The wilderness appears empty, but it's actually empty full of God. And if that's true, then we start to make sense of the idea that it wasn't the devil that led Jesus into the wilderness. We know that he went there to be tempted by the devil, but it wasn't the devil that brought him there. Look again at what it says in Mark 1. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. So just like it was God who led the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert. It was also God who led Jesus through the Jordan River and into his wilderness. So the wilderness isn't a punishment from God. The wilderness 
is a gift. Which is why all throughout the Gospels, then, we see Jesus return to the wilderness again and again. He wakes up early in the morning and he goes to the wilderness. He leaves his disciples and he goes to the wilderness. He slips away from the crowds and he goes to the wilderness. So for Jesus, the wilderness wasn't a place to avoid, but a place to pursue. Now, here's what's interesting about Mark's account of Jesus' temptation. Matthew and Luke both give us way more of the story in their Gospels. They describe the specific temptations Jesus faced and the conversations he had with the devil out there. But Mark doesn't give us any of that. He gives us one sentence to describe what happened during those 40 days. In verse 13, He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. That's it. What an interesting way of summing up the nearly six weeks Jesus spent wandering in the wilderness. I mean, the Hebrew scriptures take 127 chapters of the Bible to tell the story of Israel's time in the desert. Mark takes one verse to tell us what it was like for Jesus. It's basically his take on a training montage. Jesus was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So I wonder, why would Mark include only those details? What's he trying to convey about what happens in the wilderness? Well, remember the reason the Spirit led Jesus out there in the first place was to be tempted by the devil. And usually when we think of being tempted, we think of being lured or enticed to sin. And that's definitely part of it. But a better way of understanding the Greek word that's used here is tested. That Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tested by the devil. Now, most of us don't like taking tests. I know I don't. In fact, I still have the occasional nightmare from high school where I show up for class and I didn't know there was a test that day. It can be kind of terrifying. And not just because tests are hard, but because a good test tells the truth. That's the whole point of a test. A teacher gives a test to find out what the student actually knows. Because from the outside, it may look like the student is paying attention and tracking and getting it, but if you really want to know what they're learning, then you give them a test and you find out the truth. So tests reveal reality. They expose what's really there. Which is why even if we don't like taking tests, we're all glad they exist, right? Like I'm glad that airplane parts get tested. I'm glad that elevators get tested. I'm glad we can get our blood tested and find out what's happening inside our bodies. A good test tells the truth. And once we know the truth, then we can respond accordingly and move forward, not just guessing and speculating and wondering, but with confidence. So as Tyler Durden says, how much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? So Jesus is out in the wilderness being tested by the devil. And all that Mark tells us is that he wasn't alone out there. He's with the animals and with the angels. 
and somewhere between the animals and angels, the truth about Jesus is being revealed. Think about this with me. Animals are natural creatures, part of God's earthly creation. Angels, on the other hand, are spiritual creatures dwelling in the heavenly places. So animals have a body, but no spirit, and angels have a spirit, but no body. So in this story, animals begin to represent the physical, the visible, the finite, and the natural. And angels represent the spiritual, the invisible, the infinite, and the supernatural. And this is where Jesus finds himself in this test. Angels and animals. They were both there when he was born. And now they're there with him in the wilderness. When the truth about him is being revealed. So what is that truth? It's the humanity of Christ. The wilderness is where we come to see Jesus as a human, fully alive. He's not an animal, and he's not an angel. He's a human, just like us. The author of Hebrews makes a connection between the humanity of Jesus that was tested in the desert and the confidence that we can have even when we feel weak. Hebrews 4 says... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So how does that work? Well, I'm convinced that Jesus didn't come to make us Christian. He came to make us human. And just like Jesus, the wilderness is the place we go, where we come to see ourselves, not as angels or as animals, but as humans, fully alive. Listen to the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft geeking out on this. He says, Man is the only being that is both angel and animal, both spirit and body. He's the lowest spirit and the highest body, the stupidest angel and the smartest animal, the low point of the hierarchy of minds and the high point of the hierarchy of bodies. More accurately stated, man is not both angel and animal because he's neither angel nor animal. He is between angels and animals a unique rung on the cosmic ladder. But whichever way you say it, man must know angels to know himself, just as he must know animals to know himself. For he must know what he is, and he must know what he is not. So we all know that our biggest barrier to truly living as human beings is this thing called sin. Sin is when body and spirit are separated. And another name for that is death. So let's break this down even more. 
There are essentially two ways for our body and spirit to get out of whack. The first would be to put too much emphasis on the physical, on our bodies. Essentially, if it feels good, do it. We become pleasure seekers who let our urges and passions run wild. We begin to act like animals. And the second would be to put too much emphasis on the spiritual. We turn into Puritans who think that the body is evil and we become suspicious of everything. We become self-righteous and joyless. We begin to act like angels. So if we deny the spiritual dimension of our existence, we end up living as animals. If we deny the physical dimension of our existence, we end up living like angels. And both ways are destructive to our flourishing because God made us human. C.S. Lewis makes a similar claim in his original preface to the Screwtape Letters. He writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So how do we avoid becoming materialists or magicians? How do we get our body and our spirit back into harmony? How do we quit living like angels or like animals and learn how to be human? That's actually the purpose of Lent. It's a journey through the wilderness designed to recover our humanity, to realign the spiritual with the physical. So if you're new to this, the season of Lent is the 40-day period leading up to Easter Sunday that in many ways is an invitation to reenact Jesus' time in the wilderness. And for centuries, followers of Jesus all over the world have embraced this season as an opportunity to fast and to pray, to confess and to repent, to grow and to prepare for life in resurrection country on the other side of Easter. Lent is about learning to be human in the way of Jesus. And what is the Jesus way? It's an integrated life where the physical and the spiritual, the visible and the invisible, the earthly and the heavenly are restored to the harmony that's expressed in love for God and love for neighbor. For some of us, Lent is a time of learning that you can't believe everything you feel, that your body isn't all there is to you. For others of us, it's a time of learning that you aren't just a brain on a stick. You have a body, and you should listen to it. So through the discipline of fasting, we tame this animal side of ourselves. We exercise our quote-unquote no muscles, learning to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not ultimately by our feelings or fleshly desires. And then through the discipline of prayer, we anchor our souls to the spirituality of Jesus. We find our hearts turning not only toward God, 
but towards the world he loves. So as those who are all spirit and no body, angels can lead contemplative lives, but not active lives. And as those who are all body but no spirit, animals can be active, but not contemplative. But for us, as those who are learning from Jesus how to be human, we are both spirit and body. We're invited to live lives that are both active and contemplative. Love for God and love for neighbor. Worship and justice. Glory to God and good news for the poor. Fight Club and Philippians. So Antioch, I wonder if there's a wilderness in your life that God wants to redefine for you. And maybe even though it looks barren and empty, you're actually in a place that's full of God. You just haven't noticed. Lent's a time to slow down and to pay attention. And I hope you'll follow the Spirit into the desert over the next 40 days. And I know that if you do, you'll never be the same. In just a moment, Pastor Amy will come and lead us to the Lord's table and to prepare ourselves to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Will you join me in this prayer of confession as we close? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.